0: This episode's part of a special feature series on New York City and is a co-presentation with the Museum of the City of New York with generous support from the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Find us at yourhometown.org or on your favorite podcast app.
1: As I was reading, it struck me, and I just, I, I couldn't go on. I was so struck. And I thought of feelings and memories being like, getting into a crevice deep down inside you somehow, in a fold in your heart Mm -hmm. that you'll never find, like a needle in a haystack, but until you do, until you sit a certain way and it jabs you. Everything that I write, even for Ernie and Bert, when I wrote for them had something to do with my life that Mm -hmm. I remembered. Mm -hmm. that I transformed to work for the Ernie and Bird story, but it came from, from me.
0: Where did you grow up is a question we're all asked, a lot, but the answer is never as simple as a place on a map, is it? It's about the kid inside of us and what happened to them there before we met the world and the world met us. I'm Kevin Burke and this is Your Hometown. Welcome to part two of my interview with Sonia Manzano, one of the most influential voices in the history of public television. For more than 40 years, she was our neighbor, Maria, on Sesame Street, and she continues to connect her experiences and imagination through the new show she's created for PBS Kids, Alma's Way. When we left Sonia at the end of part one, she'd just gone to see West Side Story, the original film, 1961, with an elementary school teacher who was looking out for her at a tough time in her life. Up to that point, Sonia hadn't really seen anyone like her, her family, or the people in her neighborhood on screen. But now she realized that her hometown life wasn't outside of the world of art. It could be its inspiration. And that didn't mean having to keep the love and the joy while editing out the chaos and the confusion. It was all part of the human condition. In her own childhood, that condition had different rules for boys and girls watchful and sometimes dangerous eyes in the neighborhood, and moments of connection, community, and tradition, as well as loneliness and alienation. Sadly, it also included domestic violence in her own house, to the point that Sonia tried to help her mother divorce her father, only to realize that clean breaks aren't necessarily happy ones, which you can read more about in her memoir, Becoming Maria, Love and Chaos in the South Bronx. Through it all, Sonia had a potent imagination. Movies and TV were important source material, but so was New York City. In this hour, you'll hear how she got from the South Bronx to Sesame Street, and how the real and fictional maps of those two neighborhoods overlapped in her and the world she created for us. Our conversation continues with me asking Sonia to share some of her stories in the wider city. As a magical storyteller, she knew just where to go in her memories for that powerful combination of laughter amid pathos—the funny and the sad, the lesson in the everyday. We started tight in on a, on a window on a block on Third Avenue.
1: But you also have New York, Greater New York. My greater New York, yeah. I have to mention a little bit about Brooklyn because my cousin Eddie, mm-hmm. um, who was the son of my uncle Eddie, my favorite uncle your mother's brother yeah and his they moved to Brooklyn to Bensonhurst and they're living in a brownstone and Brooklyn to us was like no man's land you know I mean uh, Brooklyn is far away it's hard to get to it's huge you know it's 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 this remarkable place somehow we find ourselves in Brooklyn and his mother who's kind of a has a few loose screws, has decided that there's gold in the basement. And she's digging for gold. <laughs> and all of us are looking at each other saying, what if she hits like a con-ed... She's digging in the basement? She's digging in the basement. But years later, I, I confront my cousin and I said, what, what the heck was that all about? And, she's, and he says, we did find something in the basement. I said, what did you find? They found a, 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 a scroll, like a Jewish, in a canister, with Hebrew, wow. that's what he said. So it had a history. It had something, so. Yeah.
0: Not gold necessarily. Not but gold,
1: but something was, amazing. It was, it was nuts. But, but that was a, a great, that's my Brooklyn story. Yeah.
0: And, uh, and other things, you know, in, in the city like the subway, also became pivotal to you yeah. coming into view. You learned to read on the subway. Yes. And I want to ask you about that. I mean, that's a, so so interesting. So,
1: well, in those days, uh, uh, they they taught you to read from Dick and Jane primers, and it was C, C Spot Run, if people know those books. And uh, I, I, of course, could speed through it. And then another teacher. Um, she didn't let me go on. I had to wait for the class to catch up. I couldn't turn the page. So I, I found myself sitting there often in class looking out the window, waiting mm-hmm. for the class to catch up. But I, that gave me the idea that reading was some empty exercise you did in school that had nothing to do with anything. They mm-hmm. just made you, I had no idea how reading played in the world. Yeah. And so I was in the train with my sister and uh, who was grumpy all the time. And she, I said, what are the ads over, I asked her what the ads over our heads said. And she said, why don't you try reading them? She was exasperated with having to <laughs> take care of me probably. And I looked and all of a sudden, all of this phonetic sounds, I just put it all together and it, all the words came into place, and I understood everything as quickly as you know when you're at Penn Station, and all of the trains information comes through on the billboard.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes.
1: All of a sudden, I could read, and it was like fabulous. And then Imagine. I read, you know, you know, how about um, Miss Subways, 1957? That was a big ad all the time, and. I read about how smoking Chesterfield cigarettes was good for your health. (laughs) Those are the ads of, uh, of the time. This is the best, Chesterfield, and the time to change today. Yes, it's the Perry Como Show, all the top tunes on TV and radio, brought to you by Chesterfield. The quality is high in every Chesterfield you buy. The nicotine is low and we can show the reason why. Now
0: what about going to see your, your, your big sister, Aurea? You know, she's eight years older, living on the Lower East Side. Yeah. Think of that bohemian world.
1: This was like before hippies, more like a beatnik mm-hmm. sensibility. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was always all this discussion. They were always talking about Faulkner and playing Miriam McKiba and uh, Nina Simone records and... Uh, you know, they were so free and, you know, my mother's concerned about the tablecloth and the, you know, uh, meaningless things and, and, and I would go there there was all this intellectual um, expression and exchange of ideas between her and her friends and her boyfriend and her, who became her husband. And I, I was just I lo- I said this is for me. It's a new, dome, it's a new day. It's a new life.
0: For me, and I'm feeling
1: good.
0: What was the best news you saw your family receive in your home when you were growing up?
1: The best news? Yeah. I don't know. I can't recall. The thing that, that should have been when they finally bought a house. If you know, if you know anything about migrants or immigrants, mm-hmm. it's getting the house. Yes. And I remember uh, our first night moved in and my mother was very excited. And my father w- stepped out.
0: Where was the home? to just-
1: Neck. It was like very uh, underpopulated at the time. There was like a, a woods in front of the house. They had just built these houses. So this,
0: this was by any measure the American dream. Yeah, it was gotten the American
1: home. dream. And, and your so, mom
0: had pushed for it, sounds oh like. Oh my
1: God, her, she was, it was all her. All of her. Get, she was Anita in West Side Story, getting the washing machine, getting the... Wow. Joining the union, voting.
0: And credit is so nice. One look get us, and they charge twice. I have my own washing machine. What will you have though to keep clean?
1: If it wasn't for her, he wouldn't have gotten into the um, the union. He wouldn't have uh, claimed that he was a veteran. He went to he was a veteran. Never, I didn't
0: know that he was a veteran.
1: I didn't know it either. I you know she was the one who was saying, look, you got to be part of the system. <laughs> when she come in good old New York. She lived in Florida for a while, but she wow. loved New York
0: So she gets this and the first night your father who was ambivalent about it goes out So was her heart broken? Oh, wow.
1: And I saw that I was 16 17 something like that.
0: So what should have been the best night of her life?
1: It should have been the the best night of her life, but she was, you know, that was her... She she would still hope that the next night would be the best night. I learned from that, no, I'll change the whole situation. (laughs) Robert Young and Jane White
0: with Eleanor Donahue, Billy Gray, and Lauren Chapin in Father Knows Best. We missed you at dinner, dear. Sorry you had to work so late. Uh, It seemed like everybody in Springfield had insurance problems today. Mm
1: -hmm. Where are the children?
0: Kathy's next door. Betty's at a sorority meeting and Bud's upstairs.
1: Ah, quiet evening at home.
0: Thinking about all this going around... In your world, Sonia, where where was a safe place for you? Where would you go for safety, in 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 your in your home or in your world?
1: I think I went in my mind. Yeah, I really did. Say
0: more about that, because I think that's an interesting part of you. I uh,
1: I uh, um, I went in my mind. One time, I had to be somebody was going to babysit. I had to go to their house, their ne- the neighbor, and she. Um, she took a nap in the middle of the afternoon with her babies and she said to me, just sit in the chair and I sat in the chair and in the chair, I, I was very obedient. I didn't stand up from the chair, but I, I used my feet to dance like I was a ballerina. I listened for the train and I made a song out of the train. I mean, I had this whole thing thing going, uh, and I remember that dancing around, or you know, making believe I, I was flying through the air because I saw stuff on Ed Sullivan mm-hmm. <laughs> that I wanted to do. And so I did find comfort in in uh, uh, in my brain, in my mind. I guess I would put myself in movies. And, Television. Oh, is there any wonder? I'm in the mood for love.
0: I ha I hold hot. hold
1: <laughs> on. It's not because of weather.
0: This little dream might
1: fade. We put our hearts together, and now we are one. Another round. <laughs> There's a sign above
0: him. If it should rain, we'll let it. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> ah, hot dog, lettuce.
1: <laughs> and- <laughs> <laughs> uh, Louis Prima. I used to love to see the short with Louis Prima and Keely Smith the comic, Louis Prima, and, um, you know, and his deadpan wife, that was hilarious. We went to the movies a lot.
0: So you would, you would pull from them, and you could um, place, project yourself into those stories? Yes,
1: and I decided then my Uncle Eddie was exactly like Robert Young, and he was father knows best. You know, I used to always try, remember the little rascals, and they sure. used to always put shows on? Yeah. I used to try to put shows on like that. And uh, you know, and I drag some of my f- friends over, my cousins, and I'd say, "Come on, let's put on a little show." I mean, I, but I don't think, I don't, th- you know, it, it was like you were a kid, and they felt that if they fed you and you went to bed, that was all they, that was all you were about.
0: Childhood also is full of insecurities. You know, what if I fail? What if I don't make it? What if I don't realize my dream? You know, it's it's an insecure time, an awkward time of life. And I'm wondering, who were the people, Sony, in your life who told you that you were good, that you that you had something?
1: I have to tell you that it was my mother. Mm-hmm. And I don't think she knew what I was trying to go for. She would just say, "You go, girl. You get, You keep going. You'll get there. Don't worry." I don't even think she knew where I was gonna get. You know, and I didn't know what I was gonna get to. But I've always had the capacity to see the obvious. You know, when I went to college, and you know, I only went to for acting because I could go to college. My grades were so lousy. Well, that's an example. I went to the performing arts. Yes. And I go from being an A student in the Bronx to being a C student in performing arts, because I didn't have the background that these kids had of better elementary school education. I didn't, have base, I didn't know what a noun was. I didn't know how to write. I mean, they were so, and so I, my grades plummeted, and by the time got, I had to go to college, I said, okay, I'm not going to do it on grades. I wasn't a stellar actress, so the, they weren't recommending me to Juilliard and all of that. So I did it on my own. I said, the only way I'm gonna to go to college is if I can audition. That, that way I can razzle-dazzle them and they won't look at my crates. <laughs> <laughs> Give them the old razzle-dazzle Razzle, dazzle, um. it was a long shot but it was the only shot i had uh, i wasn't recommended by the teachers of the school i went on my own to carnegie mellon U- university and i got in, in pittsburgh because yeah. i wanted to go to college and it was it was pass fail <laughs> and uh, it was all all acting classes and you got in on an audition and so that was like a really interesting thing to go to, to go to Pittsburgh and then I thought I'm not gonna be like these you know I didn't have the confidence of that these kids had.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I thought I'll uh, if I'm with any luck I can I can do Shakespeare in the boondocks because there's more interracial casting in Shakespeare. That's how that thing about but I guess I'm uh, my mother would always say, if it doesn't, si no te sale por una manera, que te salga por la otra. If it doesn't turn out one way, go in another way. Be fluid. And with the cast of God's Bell, we'll see the joy which theater can bring back to the history of the life of Jesus, whether for true believers or simply for fans of modern entertainment. We plow the fields and scatter the seed on the land. But it is fed and watered by God Almighty. Man. He sends the snow in winter, the warmth to swell the grain, the breezes and the sunshine, and soft, in rain. Oh. challenge is great because everybody was sort of the same.
0: And when you're there, you, you mentioned 1970, you, you're, you find yourself in what becomes. An iconic show, Godspell, but you're yeah. part of it from the ground up. Yeah. College production, then it goes to college
1: production, yeah, off Broadway, yeah. La Mama, mm-hmm. and
0: Charlene Theater. Yeah.
1: yeah, I I also got obsessed with Charlie Chaplin in college. Acting up until that time was like the method. Mm-hmm. You got to feel it. You got to feel it. You got to feel it. You know, Marlon Brando type stuff. Yeah, everybody loved that. I couldn't bear that. And then this mind teacher, we would watch Chaplin films and they were just, I loved it because it was sad and funny at the same time. And pathos, I thought that was, mm-hmm. I just loved that. So, um, And kind of Godspell was in that, it was funny, but it was one of the saddest stories ever told. And I didn't even know what this story was about until we got to the end and we, we staged it and I said, oh my goodness. And you're 20. I, and I learned two things that certain things I did on stage would make people laugh. Oh, this is something new. (laughs) Uh, And that there were moments on stage I felt like I was flying. We were completely free. It was great, a great experience. And because this show is
0: coming to you live from New York, I can't think of a better way of getting it started than presenting the kind of entertainment that makes New York really live. Here's the very exciting
1: young cast of Godspell.
0: You're now out of the Bronx. Um, You're in another place. You're in Pittsburgh. And you have a roommate from Ohio. And she tells you, you're, you're talking in your sleep one night. And sort of that gets the ball rolling of her getting to know you, getting to know her, and you start telling her stories about your childhood. Yeah. And there's a point in your memoir which I, I circled and it struck me so, so much where you said that no memory is too traumatic, personal, or stupid to relate, and I never feel ashamed or angry while telling them because they become stories
1: that happen to someone else. I even embroider them. And I thought, that, that worked. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I thought it was odd, believe mm-hmm. me. A little part of me thought, why aren't you feeling anything when you're telling these things? It's like you're talking about another person. And I didn't. And I feel it. And uh, I, I uh, you know, I don't know why that happened. But when I was recording the memoir mm-hmm. that you are referring to, a story I had told a million times, and I wrote it and rewrote it, and the editor looked at it and i can't remember what
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the reading i something touched a nerve, and I started to cry, and I just i i couldn't go on, I was so struck, and I thought of feelings and memories being like getting into a crevice deep down inside you somehow, in a fold in your heart Mm -hmm. that you'll never find, like a needle in a haystack, but until you do, until you sit a certain way and it jabs you.
0: And do you you remember what the passage was?
1: I I, I don't, I, I don't. I think it was like after my mother's divorce and I realized you know, was it futile or was it not futile? Uh-huh. Yeah, did I make her happy or did I make her unhappy? Yeah. But um, uh, everything that I write, even for Ernie and Bert, when I wrote for them, had something to do with my life that mm-hmm. I remembered, mm-hmm. that I transformed to work for the Ernie and Bert story, but it came from, from me.
0: what's so fascinating about your career and not that long after God's bill obviously um, you do audition for Sesame Street and your ability to make stories out of the material of your life which you did with the Periscope right yeah. in your audition with John Stone you turn it into a fabulous tale with this eye and you yeah. end up eating the eye and right. it makes you sick You yeah. get the job on Sesame Street and in a sense you, you get a second you get a second childhood in a way um, because you you, you lived and you write adulthood and then you you go into a show about childhood right and did it feel at times that you were not I don't want to say getting a do-over but you're it you're, is a
1: do-over that's exactly what I was going to say yeah that's so. exactly what I mean I couldn't believe I love being going to that set I love being on the fire escape it, it was like Sonia could do it again but you know without the danger in a warm environment in an mm-hmm. idealistic environment but I wasn't going into Father Knows Best's world.
0: That's what I think is interesting. There's a tension there between idealization, but also keeping it authentic. Yes. And how to strike that balance. Yes. And so there you are, you're, you're performing as a Maria. You're also writing, you won 15 Emmy Awards uh, during your, your, your run on the show. So you're writing, and you're writing from experience, but you're also presenting it in a way that presents it in a purer form. Because you, you had your own childhood, which was filled with danger which was filled yeah. with complexity, right? And uh, instability and, and uh, other things, love and chaos. Right. But right. you are trying to create a world for kids and a kids' world on Sesame Street that empowers them, that makes them feel safe and integrated, right, part of the world. So, how did you
1: Well, I think well the, a lot of credit has to go to John Stone. It was his vision mm-hmm. of sure. of having a real real uh, a, a real place and uh, and, and getting everybody on board and telling me, I, I'd say, What's Maria like? Just be yourself. We just want you to be yourself so kids could relate to you. So the kids were trying to reach uh, underserved children, can see themselves represented on television. And one time uh, they, they would put makeup on me, and I was like in my early 20s. And uh, John Stone came in, and he was. Uh, Sometimes he had like a storm on his, you know, I could see a storm in his forehead. <laughs> and uh, he took a look at me, grabbed me, took me into the makeup room and said to the makeup artist, I go through all the trouble of hiring a real person and you make her up to look like a cupie doll. He was furious. Wow. The makeup artist got really nervous and she starts taking the makeup off me. This, while they're. This drama is going on above my head. I'm looking at myself in the mirror thing, I get it. I get this job now. I get it. They're not kidding. They really do want a real person. They really do want me. And I sort of I ran with it. Hi, Maria. How are you doing? That? I am really right. Yeah, it I looks that way. all this work you to do. Yeah, it looks like you're really busy. Listen, I wanted to talk to you about, um.
0: Oh, listen, I wish I could talk right now, but I really can't. I got to get. This all this stuff finished. Yeah, yeah, but
1: see, what I wanted to talk to you about, I mean, I didn't just come in here to talk, I want, I...
0: Oh, excuse me, excuse me. Hello? People are so impatient.
1: Yeah, I just fixed uh, Spencer's wagon.
0: You fixed his wagon? Yeah.
1: See, what I wanted to talk... You fixed his wagon? Yeah. See, so you've got a lot of work I mean, you to You did do. it all by yourself? Yeah, and I and I know a little bit about fixing I things. didn't
0: know you knew how to yeah, fix things. Yeah, I
1: do, and, you know, I have some free time now, and uh, I can... Hey, how are you at r- fixing bicycles? But... Oh, it's my specialty. You're hired, okay. kid. Okay. I can tell you, I was stunned when I first saw myself on camera. Really? I thought I was uh, a tall, willowy blonde, almost. I mean, <laughs> 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 and what did you think? I was. Uh, uh, I I didn't like the way I looked. I, you know, it took me a while to get used to it. Things were changing in the city. Uh, The the young lords of the the activist Mm -hmm. group took over uh, Spanish Harlem, I was interested in that group. They were very serious, I wasn't part of it, but I loved that they were sort of, everything Puerto Rican was beautiful, your hair was beautiful. I started to let my hair grow natural and, and embrace the way I looked, embrace my nose. Embrace,
0: but it took time.
1: My skin tone, yeah. I mean, you never saw people like me on television. When I was a kid, if you saw a person of color on television, you'd run through the building like your hair was on fire, calling, "Look, look, look! Come on, there's not going to be a thing. Won't be on for long. Quick, quick.
0: You know. So, um, and you're really one of the pathbreakers on television in yeah. doing that. But even for you, you're saying seeing yourself. Right. It took getting used to. And
1: plus, I I remember thinking, how should I wear my hair? Should I put it in hair rollers so that it's smooth? Mm. Or should I let it be as you're looking at it now? Mm. And for some reason I thought the way I presented myself that first way was going to be the way I had to look for the rest of my life.
0: Maybe fixed. Fixed. Frozen.
1: Frozen. And then I remembered how I found comfort watching television. And I said, so all of the children out there who are looking for comfort watching television, that's who I'm talking to. And in order for them to have that moment of peace, I have to be sincere or they're going to, they're not going to be fooled. And I I mean, I got away with murder. I got to tell you. I mean, I was snarky to Big Bird every once in a while. Maria, Maria. Oh, what is it now, Big Bird? Oh, uh-huh, Maria, I know I-, I-, I. won't bother you now. I just want to borrow a dime. Can I? David uh, Northern Calloway, who played David, a young man who worked in Hooper's store, and I were always because we went to high school together. So I knew him from high school. Did you really? Yeah. Did you really? Oh, wow. Uh, uh, you know, we were always kind of holding hands and kissing because that's what I used to see in my neighborhood where the young kids, you know, uh, leaning against the building and, you know, finding little places to make out. Make out, yeah. And so he and I, you know, we put that in. I mean, I'm I, I like, you couldn't do that on a kid's show now. No, we no. We were no. outrageously flirting with each other. Hi, hey. Well, <laughs> is there any uh, special reason why you came here today? <laughs> no, no. I'll take a cup of coffee. Cup of coffee. Yeah. Okay, cup of coffee. <laughs> must hmm. the door? <laughs> the wind must have, you know. Oh, cup, cup of coffee. Yeah. Right. You know what? You know, all day I, I've had this um, kind of feeling that you know that that uh, this was a very special day oh. you ever get that feeling that you know one particular day out of maybe <laughs> one once a really? year very special day no that never happens to me no mm. cup of
0: coffee yeah cup of coffee. <laughs> how do you see if you overlay the 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 real map of your 3rd avenue let's say or your in your bronx and you you overlaying on top of it is the map of sesame street which is the world of pretend. It's an urban space but it's an idealized space. How did you, how do you see those two maps laying onto one another and what what did you try to bring from your map to that map? You know you mentioned your mother can make dresses, you make stories. We
1: used to be on the stoop in the summer outside and then at a certain point all the kids, all the neighborhood kids were there. My mother would say okay it's time for us to go upstairs and she'd make us go upstairs and I was convinced that the minute we left everybody really started to have a good time. And I always wanted to stay longer, and she would say no. Well, one day, she says, because I I had a cousin, I said, please let me stay out with cousin Maria, and she allows me, and I'm thinking, this is it. Now I'm gonna see what goes on when we go to bed. Well, you know what? They went home, too. (laughs) (laughs) So nothing happened. Years later I have to write a bit about imagination and that's what I write about, Big Bird, Susan and Gordon tell Big Bird he's got to, you know, turn the lights out in his nest. He doesn't want to because he has an imagination and in the imagination circus performers come through and they do back flips mm-hmm. I mean, that's what goes on is in the imagination, comes out of his imagination and uh, you know, Susan and Gordon watch the news. He says, oh, I'd rather go to sleep. I have more interesting dreams. And so that's how you took, I took a little thing yeah. and, you know, used it to tell this, this other story. Maybe you could make me up a story. Make up a story? You mean one that's not in a book? Yes. Well, I don't think I could make up a story on such short notice, Big Bird. Well, then maybe you could tell me a true story. I know. Why don't you tell me your life story? Why don't you tell me about all the great and exciting things you've done in your life? Hmm? My life story? Yeah. Well, I know what I can do. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you a story of all the jobs I've had since I got out of high school. Oh, great.
0: Okay. And then there's the flip side of that, which is taking experiences where they were filled with emotion, or t- dang- tornadoes, yeah. and taking the tornado out. Right. Uh, you weren't putting the tornadoes... In Sesame Street. No. But you had, as a kid, experienced that. And that's, that's the amazing thing about a show like Sesame Street is that it's like the, 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 in making the show and in viewing the show, there's sort of an implicit understanding that we are all in our own lives experiencing what we're experiencing. But for this hour, we're going to try to focus on the way we want, we, we want things to be. That's part of the making of the art and receiving the art, but that doesn't mean real life
1: disappears. And that's why Sesame Street was successful. It wasn't, te- it's, it wasn't inculcating kids with this is what the world should be. It's like we're going to give you tools so you can make the world yeah. what, it should, what yeah. you want it to be. That's the difference.
0: You don't have to go inside, you can stay right here, be my what? guest.
1: Oh, well, no, 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 no. Sit here, Mr. Rupert, really? look, if, and work outside. That's a nice idea, but if, if I stay out here, I think
0: I'm gonna be interrupted, and I have to keep ah, stopping. No, and, you it's you know. nice and quiet here, and I'll see that nobody disturbs you. Every kid has their time to spend with Sesame Street. Right. So I, I was too old by the time that you got married to Louisville and had Yeah. There. I was there in that period, the early 80s, Right, right. You know, 81, 82, 83, having lost my grandfather and uncle. And then Mr. Hooper died.
1: Um, Where is he? Big Bird, uh, don't you remember we told you? Uh, Mr. Hooper died. He's Mm. dead. Oh yeah, I remember. Well, I'll give it to him when he comes back. Big Bird. Mr. Hooper's not coming back. Why not? Big Bird, when when people die, they don't come back. Ever? No, never. It was incredible and everybody wanted, and Dulcie Singer was a producer at that time and everybody wanted her to just say that he recast, you know, he went to Florida and retired and she said, why are we, our home tenant is that to show real reality, Absolutely. and death is not a man-made evil. No, it's,
0: and I thought it was handled so well. And and, and so anyway, I, that, that's where I, that's my piece of. assessment. I wasn't
1: a writer at the time, and that's but that's when I became most impressed with the organization.
0: Around that loss,
1: when they handled that, I observed. Yes. Yes. Then, and I said, these people are substance hi honey what <laughs> oh. you doing uh, just wondering wondering
0: <laughs> yeah i can't sleep wondering when our babies come
1: <laughs> oh, what i think you can stop wondering
0: well, it's coming
1: well, yeah i think this is it well, well, are you sure positive well how can you be so well, sure well it, it, it just pushed like it's never pushed before <laughs> start counting when now
0: one then you have all these kids who, of a certain age, who grew up and you're the mom on Sesame Street. Right. What was that like for you?
1: Oh, I, I really loved it. Mm-hmm. I loved the kids. I, uh, I had my favorite kids. I saw them grow up. I've, uh, you know, now the kids who are on the show are like 40 years old or 50 years old.
0: Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah. so
1: they're, uh, and I've gotten wonderful letters from heartbreaking letters uh, uh, one person wrote to me said my mother was schizophrenic and my one hour of peace was watching you on the show
0: and and as a kid you had chaos in the house
1: but, yeah. and you had
0: gone to tv for order right for orderliness for
1: order and i saw order and father knows best right it was or, and and
0: and now group. you're creating it you you are creating the order for kids at home through that portal yeah as a Marie on Sesame Street, right. as a mom, exactly.
1: I mean, it was great. I mean, got another letter. You know, somebody said I was uh, uh, gay mm-hmm. and uh, in Philadelphia and from a disruptive household, and you were. Uh, and this was such a heartfelt letter. There was no return address. This person just wanted me to know this. I think I can imagine my mom when she was a baby being rocked in a carriage. Imagine. Yeah. In your
0: own life, with your own daughter and, you know, your own family, um, I'm picturing you now being in the role of uh, that your mother occupied when she was dying her hair. Right? You, you were asking her for stories, and she was sort of giving you a, a, a window onto her past. Um, now there are little ones, you know, or your daughter, or people in your life who are going to look to you and want to access your memories because they can't see it. They can't see, right. your, they can't see your Bronx. They can't see your family as it was. And my question for you is, what do you want to allow them or invite them to see, what do you want
1: them to know about you? You when know you... what? I want them to know everything about me. Now, whether they're interested in knowing <laughs> about me is another story. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, you know, I, uh, I don't think that parents are as interesting to their kids no matter who they are. Sometimes it's too late and you can't. It's too late and I to this day, i talked a lot with my mom and I'm sorry I didn't ask her a lot of questions. I'm sorry I didn't insist somehow to, to know about my father. I'm sorry, but there you are. Uh, so what I want them to know, everything, I want them to know everything about me, but you know what? You know why they don't want to know about you? And with, this, is, this is all in the grand design of things. If they took your lessons to heart, they would just go back to bed and not participate in society at all. <laughs> they have to say, oh yeah, you don't know, I'm going to do it my way. That's what keeps the younger people moving on.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, in certain ways, you've given a gift to the world and to your family with the memoir because you have you you did struggle over ten years to, to put it down on the page. Yes, give I
1: had to. I had to put it out there. I had to. I had to have closure with my father. It made me visit my father. I hadn't seen him in years. I just had to.
0: And why hadn't you seen him in years? Had there been a, a break, or was it sort of a
1: it was just kind of a, a you know, if you're not interested in your children when they're little, you're not. The interest, you know, when they get to be grown people. The most important years in a child's life for the youngest one, when you make the connection, when you wait till they're 16, you're baby a little late. So, uh, but I felt I had to sort of, you know, see what was, see, take sort of like the schmutz out of my eyes and mm-hmm. see him and see what, if he remembered things as I did. And he said, uh, he said, I still love your mother, but she always wanted to do what she wanted to do. (laughs) (laughs) And this was the bugaboo, you know. And did
0: he take responsibility for the
1: violence? No. it, 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 It seemed like you were, I never even thought about you, Sonia, so what are you worried about? I think it was that, I mean he didn't articulate Mm -hmm.
0: that. But but it sounds like he never really had the reckoning in that way. No, no. One of the things that jumps out when you're reading your memoir, is that you don't talk about death.
1: I don't. Uh, my mother was, her. she described her father her whole life as being this cold, you know, he sent his children out, didn't care for his children, being a tight wad, and all this kind of stuff. And he, and to, to the point where I, I hated him because he was so mean to my mother and didn't take care of my mother. And then it turns out he's dying and she's sick and he's sick and she's saying, oh gosh, I have to, I have to go see him. Uh, and I said, "What do you care? You just told me he was a terrible person. Why do, why do you have to? So that was confusing to me. That, so and she did finally go see him. And then when my grandmother died, my father's mother, yeah. uh, who I, I think I look a lot like her. We have the same hands, I know that. So she, uh, uh, they didn't uh, tell me that, I was in college and they didn't tell me she died. And those are the only, uh, yeah. Except for my uncle Eddie dying, and then he died of Alzheimer's, and that's like losing losing someone in segments. And my mother too. And I knew, and I knew that something was wrong when she didn't listen to music anymore. She loved music. She would sing like The If She heard like Mozart, like on she she'd hum it like she'd know it. And she she listened to Jethro Tull. That <laughs> Jethro Tell, he's really good.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. So she had an ear for music. So to see great, her leave, she that she had was. a
1: beautiful voice in mm. in that kind of hillbilly, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if if there was a, uh, a hibaro, that kind of plaintive mountain voice.
0: And can you still hear her in your mind when you're talking? That's yeah. a beautiful thing. stay through my window I watch
1: her as she passes by I say to myself You're
0: And so they're now both gone, your parents. So you have to live on the memories of them. And where does that world live inside of your, your mind? As you get older and you reach you know different ages, how do you find yourself reinterpreting or reimagining? You know, I mostly,
1: now that you ask, you're forcing me to answer. I, I think I mostly remember the good things.
0: That's what you're holding on to. And, and how would you, how do you define those things? Is it the singing, is it the- The
1: singing, my mother, you know, going ta-da, you know, when she would come into a room sometimes. Uh, uh, um, mimicking scenes in movies. I remember her and, and my sister discussing whether uh, a certain movie star was sexy, a male movie star. And my mother being exasperated and saying, oh, what do you know? <laughs> <laughs> you <laughs> talk about how, it,
0: as a kid, just the anticipation of her getting off that train yeah, and seeing her wave up to you? I mean, can you still, in your I mind, could, see that movie in your mind? I
1: see it. She looked... I was the most beloved kid in the world, the way she looked at me. She was just charmed. You think
0: of the date she put in. I mean, she was working in a factory. That's not an easy day. It
1: was terrible. When I first went to that factory, I couldn't believe it because she used to leave the house in this beautiful little dress mm-hmm. with a little waist, very Mad Men, that era. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, when I got there to the factory, it was so noisy. It was industrial sewing machines. It wasn't like the sewing machine at your house. And there was thread flying everywhere. And all the women took their clothes off. So they looked great when they entered and like when they left.
0: So I mean, you saw that she was, she was literally sweated Sweating. for her work.
1: As a matter of fact, here's another. I, if this was a visual, you'd, yeah. I'd say to mom, so how was your day? And she'd go like this. She'd wipe her brow with her thumb yeah, like, like a cartoon character. I think of
0: how weary she must have been getting off that train and still she had it in her to look up uh, at that window. Oh, and it was
1: just great. It was wonderful.
0: And you were feeding her. Yeah. Now you know as a mom, right? You can imagine being on that yes. train coming home and seeing yeah. you in the window. It's a beautiful image. from from Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass and I ask every guest this and I wanted to to do that with you as well and it comes from Song of Myself and this is of course Walt Whitman iconic New Yorker poet and in Song of Myself he writes this he says I bequeath myself to the dirt to grow from the grass I love if you want me again look for me under your boot soles you will hardly know who I am or what I mean but I shall be good health to you nevertheless and filter and fiber your blood. Failing to fetch me at first, keep encouraged. Missing me one place, search another. I stop somewhere, waiting for you." And I I have this idea in my mind that when I read these lines, that, you know, someday, when we're no longer here, fifty, a hundred, two hundred years from now, uh, there might be someone comes along who grew up watching you or sees you and reads your memoir and wants to know you, wants to know Sonia, and comes to New York, comes to your hometown, and wants to commune with you, where should they look for you? If they want to feel your spirit and stand in a place that meant a lot to you, and just feel you wash over them in that mighty river um, of New York, where, where should they go?
1: Uh... I guess they should go to 3rd Avenue. I mean, even though the building isn't there, the outcropping that I climbed is...
0: In Cortona Park?
1: It's, it's, no, it was on the street. It's on the street? Like, yeah, they, they built a building over it, but you could still see it.
0: Okay, so go to that outcropping. Go
1: to that outcropping, as I loved it. They could see, see. the whole world like I did.
0: And in terms of your own map, Sonia, on that map, where would you say is the happiest place on your map of New York? When you think of just pure happiness?
1: I think it has to be on the set of Sesame Street.
0: And where is the most um, haunted place on the map?
1: Third Avenue, the outcropping. <laughs> so, yeah, so of the two places, right? Where, where It is full of conflicting feelings.
0: And that's, I think, one of the lessons you get from Sesame Street is that as a kid, it's reconciling sometimes feeling two feelings of the same thing. Yes. You know? uh, Right. You're happy and sad. You're scared and... Pathos,
1: that's why I love pathos so much. And humor, the the best humor comes out of sadness.
0: Thank you for listening to Your Hometown, where the local is the epic. This is a Kevin Burke production. Visit yourhometown.org to subscribe to the podcast and our various social media channels. And wherever you're listening, please drop us a review. Every star helps. For information on live events that we do around the show, visit our New York City series page on the Museum of the City of New York's website at mcny.org slash yourhometown hyphen podcast. Now let me thank the team that works with me on Your Hometown, beginning with our executive producer, Robert Crowich, our editor and sound designer, Otis Streeter, our composer and performer, Sterling Steffen, and our researchers, Shaquille Khan and Jamaris Perez. I also want to thank Tunshere Longay, Nick Gregg, and Charlotte Yu for the vivid illustrations that have given our show another dimension. Our social media manager is Michaela Watkins, and our website and branding design is by Tama Creative. A special thanks to our partners this season, the Museum of the City of New York, our lead funder, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, and all our financial supporters for their commitment to this series. It's because of them that we're able to bring this series to you. Thanks so much for taking this ride with me. And remember, everyone's from someplace, and everywhere is somewhere.